Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Oh, hey, how are you? <laughs> how are you, Bill? Good. How's life treating you? Good. I am, I've still been playing around on TikTok and enjoying that platform. And, uh, I see those. I see yours once in a while. I really like them. I've uh, I probably listened to fifteen of them. Yeah, I I've been enjoying more so like the comments that people have of of people who may not have had words to put together. Like I left religion, and then I played around in this witch place, and then it started to do the same things that religion do, but I couldn't put any of this to words. And it's like I'm sensing just a lot more people kind of joining this kind of cultural zeitgeist of of wanting to leave organized religion, but then now starting to recognize and see that there's patterns in other places. And how do I do What do I do about that? And I still want to have more meaning and more spirituality. So it's been just really interesting to just kind of get a temperature of that kind of platform. It's been fun for me. It is a fun, quick way. If, if you've got something to say, then there's this really quick audience that's right there standing ready to listen to it. So um, I think it's a great way to communicate uh in really short clips though obviously you know you can do what it's, one minute three minutes ten minutes it's so like hard every single one of my videos because and anyone who listens to this podcast knows that i can like go on and on and on and on um so it is really i don't have any one minute clips i certainly have no 15 second clips they're all three yeah. minutes down to the wire and even yeah. then i'm like missing things yeah. that i wanted to say so it's very hard for me but in you know it is actually good that the comments you only you only have like a sentence or two and so it keeps me from getting in debates with people which is really healthy for me because i get sucked into that because i can't say virtually anything because it's too short so it does keep me from getting into debates which on facebook sometimes I, i'm more apt to get sucked into a debate yeah yeah, I kind of like debates, but not debate debates because I don't think they're you. I just, I just don't think they're that useful, and I get a lot of flack because I didn't take on a certain person in a debate. Mm. But uh, I, I find that a long conversation, for instance, our guest today, you know, we'll have a long conversation on this podcast, The Witch, a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. to sit and talk for two hours, even you still don't get to cross off all the things you wanted to ask. It's still a limited conversation, and so to walk any complex idea out. You really do need time. You really need, do need to be able to have a significantly, a significant time frame to be able to hash those things out. Yeah, and I'm always trying to send people to the podcast because they'll say, you know, I want to learn learn more, and it's like this has to be done in a long conversation form yeah. to really dig into it. Like I can't give this to you in three minutes. <laughs> yep, and today is kind of like that. I mean, the topic that I wanted to cover today is how high demand fundamentalist religions or high demand religions, how they nudge people into belief and how they isolate them away from the data that would help them to think critically and take that apart. And some of the kind of uh, tangent issues that are involved with that topic. And 
So I brought a friend of mine on. I'm going to bring him onto the screen here now as soon as I get ready to click the other button here. Add to stream. We're going to add uh, this one. And there you are. John Streeter, how are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. Thanks for I always call you on. Jonathan. I always call you Jonathan, <laughs> but do you uh, you prefer John? Uh, that's how most people know me as John. I just, I use Jonathan because it sounds more sophisticated. You're using the two A's in your Jonathan too. Your parents, your parents went with the two A's, which yep, is a little different than the O at the end. So that's kind of cool. Well, they named my brother David and the idea was that we were going to get along really well together, but, uh, we, <laughs> we were, we were, you know, knuckles together yeah. for a while. That's Man. a cute story though. Either one of you went and collected, uh, 2004 skins from the Philistines though. No, sadly. Uh, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> okay. So, uh, John, you and I, I've, I've known you for years. And really, I, I knew your work before I knew you. When I hmm. was uh, all the way in on my faith paradigm, believing that my religion yeah. was the one true religion on the earth, uh, I found this article by you uh, that was called, and I was in the middle of a faith crisis. And, it's, and your article was one weird trick to fix your faith crisis. And I thought, Oh, this will, this is going to solve everything. I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, I kind of had a little bit of, um, it got complicated. That, real quick. <laughs> I kind of had an awareness that it wouldn't do that, but, uh, mm -hmm. I thought I'd give you a shot anyway. And I actually thought your article was brilliant. I could see what you were trying to do. And I think you did it. And, uh, we had a conversation on Mormonism live on another podcast a few weeks ago, but I really thought it'd be an, a different way to do it would be to cover some of that material, go into a few different things as well. And to just formulate this conversation a little differently, have it be a little more uh, just off the cuff and us talking. And so let's give you a moment to tell whatever you want to share about who you are and maybe a brief uh, synopsis of your faith journey so that folks can grasp how much work you've put in to really understand what goes into belief. Um, Okay. Um, well, you know, I was born in the covenant. Both of my parents were converts and uh raised outside of yeah exactly yeah, yeah. i only say that my, because this audience isn't necessarily mormon we we don't oh, really okay. cover it from an insider perspective other than sure. to use examples yeah so my mother was born in mexico raised catholic and was a convert on the border of texas and mexico and my father was a kansas farm boy whose best friend in school was mormon and was uh you know and introducing him to the gospel. And so it was when my father was a pilot training on the border of Texas that he met my mother. And the rest is history from their perspective. But um, I was born into a fairly large family of all boys and uh, raised in the church and had what I consider to be a pretty, I don't know, it was, it, I look back on it fondly as my raising in the church. Certainly, there were the dark corners and the issues that that we've talked about before, but overall, um, I have a lot of favorable memories of my time growing up in the church, and um, my my family history probably was significantly affected by two different things. One of them was that uh, the brother who was just older than me um, ended up with uh, was probably a suffocating injury and had a, a brain injury that kind of upended the family's life and was centered around uh, rehabilitation of him. And I was the baby at the time, so I kind of hung around while he was being rehabilitated, and that ended up accelerating me in learning to read and things like that because they were teaching him, and I was right next to him, just like a, a year younger than him. So I ended up getting accelerated in school um, as a result of that. And then uh, in 
1989, there was a motor vehicle accident with my family that claimed the life of my father uh, and uh, two of my brothers and my only sister and left my mother a widow at around age 32, 33 with um, something like six boys and then the child she was pregnant with at the time of the uh, crash. And so that introduced me to mortality, to death, to the ways that a community comes around a family that is grieving in that way, both inside and outside of the church. And, um, and, and my process of grief was a Mormon process of grief that involved all of the understandings about the afterlife and the purpose and meaning of life and all of that played a role in how I processed that grief at the time. And um, so then I kind of just went through my life as a Mormon, continued from there um, at the nexus to where I would choose to get married or go on a mission, I chose to get married. So I did not actually serve a mission. Um, I went to medical school and um, trained to be a radiologist and uh, was in the Air Force. So for you know a good chunk of my life, I was so focused on those things and active in the church, attending as regularly as possible, holding callings, but um, really my mind is not involved in right critically analyzing the church. It was just my tradition, my faith, and um, kind of gave the color to my life at the time. And then it was only when I was done with training and I was in the military, I had settled into a routine that I had time to kind of look around and um, ask questions and start figuring out what it is that I believed. A lot of it started from a political slash philosophical perspective. Um, I was struggling with what our nation was doing in terms of fighting overseas wars, what the ethics of that were. Um, part of that was flavored by my introduction to the um, just war theory as they educate soldiers on terms of um, battlefield ethics and in the medical side, medical ethics, um, all of these things coming together with me, you know, pondering what are the principles that I live by as a physician, as somebody who um, has thought about these things. And that gave me kind of a, a grounding that allowed me to look at the church through the lens of um, morality and ethics from a position that wasn't so much rooted in religious decree, but rooted, rooted in something akin to uh, natural law. And um, so kind of, you know, there are a couple of threads that first started pulling um, one of them was this issue of warfare and what have the prophets said in the past about when the nation is involved in militarily intervening abroad, and that introduced me to the reality of uh, Mormon support of Nazism before World War II, and um, uh, you know, Helmuth Hubner and a couple of those stories became um, known to me, and then it just raises the question of, well, if you know, if the prophet at the time of the most you know, clear, stark example of good and bad, you know, the Nazis versus everybody else, was telling German citizens, you know, just support your government, and that is how you can be a good Latter-day Saint. Um, while we have scriptural evidence of prophets who are speaking boldly to powerful people in favor of peace, then, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And so that kind of softened the hardened calcified shell of the perfect prophet in my head and, and allowed me to humanize them somewhat and and see them more as as perhaps flawed human beings in a way that I wasn't able to initially. And just looking more and more, the more I discovered in church history, the more it seemed to me that it did not comport with my own sense of ethics that were not rooted in, in religion. 
and that kind of just introduced me to a whole new world of um, historical facts that I had never encountered before, never, never had an opportunity to process and interrogate um, in studying church history, and I became very fascinated with that. Um, and so very early on, um, I started a series of dialogues with my older brother, who once I expressed to him that I was having doubts and that I had these very serious concerns about church history, um, he wanted to dialogue with me on those and in the effort from his perspective to try to answer my questions and help me bring back into a mindset of faithfulness. And uh, it, just, it ended up in a lot of arguments and um, there was a challenge that I kept coming up with was trying to get him to see why I don't accept some of the arguments that he was bringing to me. And so I had this idea of a metaphor of, of arguments as tools and that some of the tools might not be in the same category as other tools and that there was a, a way to describe the difference between these things. And it was rooted in kind of empirical logic and evidence and and um, falsifiability being the the principles that we base knowledge on, sort of an empiric epistemology versus what we were encountering in these uh, tools or explanations that were centered more around preserving belief and maintaining faith rather than seeking for truth uh, as a primary goal. And that's where the article about fixing your faith crisis came uh, into existence. And and uh, Bill, I remember hearing and following your story. I think I was listening, if not live, then at its very close to its first broadcast, some of the conversations, I think it was with John DeLynn that you were having, where the question was posed to you about, um, you know, if you were Hey, could you be celibate for your whole life? And it seemed like that question started off a whole cascade of introspection. It was, yeah. It was yeah. the moment I went from maybe the church isn't true, but I think it is. And I think the church is on the right side of things, but I'm not sure to me going like, oh, it's dead wrong on this issue. And yeah. and that really opened up me to kind of taking the next step in my stage of kind of deconstructing things. Yeah. And Jonathan, <laughs> can I ask a question here before you? Um, yeah, that, that kind of brings me. Yeah, vaguely to where we are. So go ahead. Yeah, I, I just have a question. So when you were kind of up until the point where you were starting to deconstruct some things, at least at least the concept of profit before then, did you have moments of cognitive dissonance that you just kind of like, whoop, like that you just kind of pushed down? Did you have a shelf or would you say that up until then it was pretty much smooth sailing, like things made sense as much as. Yeah, no, I would say that sense. I was. I was very much a firm believer that had never been challenged. Mm. The only crack that may have existed is I got to see a little bit of the challenge that widows face in the church. And mm. that is my mother had already been sealed to my father. Oh, and yeah. so when she engaged in singles and everything like that, really uh, a woman who is already sealed to a man has very few prospects. And I, I just saw that because none of the men really are interested in in engaging romantically or anything with a woman who is sealed to another man. And it just, it, it was part of the thing that she ended up, I think, exp exploring relationships outside of the church because the, it was a dead end in the church for her. Yeah. And, and, and it's, for, it made that the culture has changed. Yeah, for our non-Mormons, if you're a man in the church, you can be sealed to multiple women. So if you get divorced or your wife dies, you can reseal. But women cannot. And so it creates this situation where women who have already been sealed, um, it's this weird thing where 
you can date, but then you know that as soon as you die, they're going to go back to their previous husband. And so it's kind of a deal breaker and, and it's a weird yeah. thing that happens. <clears throat> and, and should probably add to that, even just the word seal is the idea that in Mormonism, you are given this sacred ordinance that allows you then to have a promise upon your faithfulness that you'll be with your partner for all of eternity, not just for this life. And that, uh, the church would say that eternal marriage depends on that ordinance taking place, whether alive or dead, because Mormonism does work for those who are deceased as well. But once men can be sealed to as many women as possible, as you said, many women, let me say it differently. Men can be sealed to more than one woman. If that woman, if his first wife passes away, then he can get married again and be sealed. Women generally, there are exceptions, but women generally are only sealed to one man. And so as John pointed out, your mother essentially would be seen as sealed to your dad forever. And whoever uh, decides to enter a relationship with her only gets to enjoy this life. And in Mormonism, that's counterproductive to what one's yeah. internal goals are. Yeah. So um, let's dive into this a little bit. And so I broke these sections out from your paper. We can just briefly talk about these until we get to kind of uh, my fourth one, which is where we start to take on some more some more stuff. So the first one is how difficult a faith crisis is, John. Hmm. And uh, obviously folks that watch this podcast, folks who are deconstructing or have deconstructed their religion, come to find that the more serious you took it, especially if you belonged in a high demand fundamentalist religion, that faith a faith crisis, kind of having your identity ripped from you, from your religious tribe is big stuff. Uh, any thoughts there about how how emotional and how tough and, and how hard a faith yeah. crisis is. I think in writing the article, I wanted to kind of lay some groundwork about uh, why people have different experiences from it and why some religions seem to pose more of a challenge in terms of a faith crisis than others. And this is informed by um, some of my early experiences in it. I think there was a period of time while I was still in the military and, and exploring and trying to figure out what was what, that Sean McCraney's show, Heart of the Matter, came onto my radar. And I had a period of time every day where I could watch a few of those episodes during downtime at work. And so I started watching a bunch of those episodes. And you can see Sean McCraney evolve over time, but uh, he goes in a few episodes into some human psychology and undue influence topics. And there's a one point he has a guest come on and talk more specifically about this. And, and this is just understanding how the human mind is susceptible to manipulation, to groupthink, and other things that aren't tied to any one particular religion. But when you go and you look into those groups that we've all become accustomed to calling cults, then you can find some common things that from the outside we would call manipulation um, or what, uh, you know, people who study this ended up calling, you know, any number of different terms, whether it's undue influence or coercive control or anything. They tried to categorize these, uh, you know, phenomena that showed up in these social institutions into ways that we could identify and name them. And um, it was really through a study of that that I started to then looking at both my experience in Mormonism, listening to former Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientologists, and watching a bunch of documentaries, every documentary I could get my hands on about survivors of other cults, that I started to see that you can look at these institutions both, you know, just as a big thing of what they are, but then you can also say, well, what is it in the nuts and bolts of how the institution relates to the individuals who are its members that may fit these patterns of coercive control. And to the 
degree that those um, those undue influence methods carry a very strong weight, then that can give you a sense of how difficult it can be to escape or to have a crisis in that faith. And so that first section is really just to understand, because I wanted the article to speak to anyone regardless of any faith, not just to Mormons, and I specifically did not mention Mormons in the whole thing because I was trying to reach a Mormon and I didn't want to trigger that defensiveness. But just understanding that it can be difficult to, to relate to someone who's going through a faith crisis if you're not in it. And I think in retrospect, also understanding that as significant as a faith crisis is for us leaving Mormonism, people leaving other faith traditions have struggles that may even be more challenging than our own. And their time in those other faith traditions may be more, uh, you know, essentially traumatic to them than our own. It just gives, I think, a healthy perspective in terms of trying to compare survivor trauma. Yeah, no, no, totally. I mean, you pointed out um, whether somebody was all in uh, on a religion is going to play a big part on how they yeah. feel. And as you pointed out there, what, um, and you say it in your article, what flavor of religion, you know, I watch Scientology and I see they go to these extremes where on the front end, they don't give you much. Mormonism does that too, right? Milk before meat. Yeah. But eventually you get to the point where you work up high enough and suddenly people lock you in rooms and don't let you out. And yeah. they, they control where you go. And if you do get out, they buy a house across the street. They go through your garbage. They send people mm -hmm. to your door. They put people in cars. I was even hesitant, by the way, we get to later in this conversation. And I want to cover a little bit of Scientology. I didn't want to use any of their video footage because I'm scared <laughs> to death that the moment you get on Scientology's uh, naughty list. Uh, that happened recently with Richard Dawkins. Someone was asking him about Islam and he just like sat there. Nope. And it was because it. he was like, you know, with some rusty and all this stuff going on. He literally said, I'm not going to talk about it. And we all know what he would think of Islam. Like it doesn't, you know, but but there is the, there is a threat, a yeah. real threat. Yeah. yeah. So those folks who find themselves in religions that place higher demands on them and those folks who were all in uber committed tend to have stronger faith crises, more, yeah. more hardship in that transition. And then you talked about how a faith crisis is neither good and bad. And I think this is important, right? If somebody has a faith crisis within a church that you know is just not true, then that's a good thing. It's a because it's going to lead them to deconstruct their false religion that they think is true, and to step away. Yeah. But if a faith crisis happens in a church that is true, then maybe that's maybe that's bad because then you're deconstructing the true and living church, and you wouldn't want to be doing that. So faith crisis not necessarily good or bad. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's one last thing to say on that last section, Please. which is on the point of some people are really, really into the church. They've shaped their identity around it. They're really into it. So a faith crisis is going to be more traumatic for them versus somebody who is like, eh, I was Mormon. My parents took me, but I like, I never really shaped my life around its right. dictates. And so, and the thing is, sometimes you'll con be confronted by people like that, who, when they see you talking about the harm of the church or the, the danger of it, they'll be, what are you talking about? Like the, the church is not that big of a deal. Nobody needs to be like all as yeah. upset as you are about the church, why are you complaining? But that's just because their relationship with the church and the way that they've allowed the church to assume their own authority and shape their lives is very different from yours. 
And you could say, well, that's just then a matter of differences of personality. But I think the reality is that these groups are knocking at the door of everybody's heart, trying to get in and trying to place. And there's a sense, there's a very clear direction of where you are supposed to be in good standing. And the more faithfulness, the more of your identity, the more life, the more of your choices you give to the structure that the church provides, that's supposed to be that you are a good or a better person. And so um, I think it's more than just people differences of personality. It's also differences of what the churches uh, impose or expect of members. And some of us are just more conscientious in wanting to fit and you jump through any hoops that are proposed to us. And, you know, there's this whole concept of uh, religious scrupulosity, which is kind of a, a word that maybe gives a name to this feature that some of us have of being much more OCD or, or wanting to fit into that. Um, any the, comment there before we go to the yeah, next one? In the article, did you ever go into like, um, you know, because these are things that institutions do in order to kind of keep control of their members and keep everyone and they may not say in, in the meeting, you know, what can we do to control members? But if, you're, if your concept is how can we keep people in the church because it's the right thing to do, then you kind of get some of these behaviors. But have you also kind of dug into rather than that kind of top down approach to cults, kind of the bottom up in the sense that people want this? Like if all yeah. cult leaders were to die tomorrow, we would recreate them because we want someone to tell us yeah. <laughs> right from wrong. We want someone. To, and so like, did you kind of dig into that aspect at all, at all when that, you realize that it's not just control there, right. there's something in our brains that kind of wants this. Yeah, no, I, that's not a part of this article, but it is part of what I think eventually became a more complete understanding of the dynamic that's going on. Um, because every one of those points of control are exploitations of human vulnerabilities. And so what you were describing, this need that we seem to have, are vulnerabilities that our psychology have, that that just our human nature has of wanting to belong, of uh, the sense of purpose that goes along with being a member of, of a group, of having a metaphysical narrative about what our role is in life and in society. And I've... I did a podcast about what is called the the God-shaped hole in your heart, and it's not so much that it's a God-shaped hole as much as it is is a, a bunch of contours of needs that we have and vulnerabilities that we have that are very human and very normal and found in almost everyone that then these organizations religiously realize they can have more influence over their members by filling in those gaps. And, and so that, I think, when you go on the journey of learning all the different ways in which you might surrender some of your autonomy to these relationships, institutional or otherwise, then you, that's one of the things you're going to have to struggle with are what are the human vulnerabilities that I and everybody else possess that gets captured by these groups. Um, and then the other, the correlate of that is what does it look like? What does the capturing of that look like? And, and this is more around the informational side of things um, about how questions and answers about things for which we could have a true or false uh, binding, you know, finding at the at the end of it, how that process of trying to search for the truth can be derailed. But there's a whole bunch of other dimensions and ways of looking at this, including um, sorts of emotional manipulation and groupthink that are maybe even lost to this type of analysis. And I'll just add too, I mean, I'm sitting there watching, my wife and I are watching the TV show Vikings. We're in like season four now. 
And it becomes, it's a great show, by the way. If anybody wants to just see an amazing TV show, I think it's great. Human complexity, tough decisions that leaders make. But you've got the, uh, and now like a season four, they finally meet up with the uh, Muslim folks on the piece of land that they're trying to go to battle with. But before it was just the Christians. And you've got the Vikings, you've got the Christians, now you've got the Muslims. And it becomes crystal clear that, uh, and, and sort of based on the book Sapiens, that Small tribes did great on intimacy. A little bit bigger tribes did fine on gossip. But there comes a point where your tribe is so big that if you're going to survive, you need a myth to get your, so that you can manage a larger group of people. So that you can manage a thousand people while the other tribe only has 150 and you get to win where people live because you need a binding mechanism. And myth works really well. And so humans inventing stories around which there's a God and we can place our rules in his mouth and it allows us to kind of uh, collaborate, work together, punish each other for crimes, but not have the people doing the dirty work. It's God who's told mm -hmm. us to carry it out. Seems like that's such a important mechanism for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to have humans be able to survive at least their tribe, their group against other tribes. And on some level, I, I, uh, it's going to be hard to kind of get away from that because it's almost ingrained into our DNA at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it, on the, you'll oh, find, you'll find both religious expressions of that tribal notion or of that unifying narrative notion. And uh, I think if you look in the world of politics, if you look in you know, any dimension around which people can uh, identify and shore up their, you know, their in group with a, a sense of, purpose and belonging, it, that impulse manifests to one degree or another. Mm -hmm. And I think the things that we end up examining when you start to look at the principles of undue influence or, you know, coercive control, that can show up in any of those group settings, uh, because those are just descriptions of how our human vulnerabilities can be uh, taken advantage of. And, and that, that's so, really what I loved about your article. And I love that you actually didn't ever write in Mormonism, because yeah. I feel like that's that's the tool that people can take from it. Because from when Bill and I did our bite model um, podcast, and we were learning about how the time that you're most susceptible to kind of another cult is when you've just left one, because like you mm. said, there's a vacuum there, there's, and it's just kind of your brain is primed for the next thing to fill in all of those spaces. <laughs> yeah. And so what I loved about this article is is hopefully giving a little bit more of a bird's eye view of what's going on here so that you can recognize these behaviors in wellness culture, in um, politics, in paganism, in all of the things, rather than just skipping from one religion to the next religion because our brains are just kind of primed for it already by our brain, so much of our brains being formed in religion. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the shortcomings of the article really are that when I was thinking about and, and writing that piece, I was really struggling and dealing with the issue of religion specifically. And it was really a few years after that that I began to see that those are principles that you really need to apply to any type of movement that you may be involved in. And whether that's a, a self-help group, a therapist relationship, uh, an interpersonal relationship or a romantic relationship or a social or political movement. Um, all of those relationships can have um, ways of um, suppressing your doubt or your introspection into the nature of those relationships uh, 
And so I, I think if I were to rewrite it today, I would kind of frame it not so specifically on religion, but um, really in, in any of those relationships. Yeah, I think that's something that everyone, before you go, Bill, um, I think that's something that it takes time for everyone to realize because Bill and I even just last week had um, someone who got into an unhealthy relationship with their Zen Buddhist teacher. And when I was first out of Mormonism, I don't know if you were like this too, Bill, where it was just kind of this sense of like, oh, this patriarchy stuff that's in Mormonism and Christianity, that doesn't happen in Buddhism. Buddhism is great. <laughs> Buddhism is fantastic. And then, you know, she's telling her story and she's telling us about all of the manipulations and all of the issues. And um, I don't think my first few days kind of like peeking my head out of Mormonism, I could see that everywhere yet. That took me some time. Yeah. I just the only thing I wanted to say is we're we're 35 minutes in and I want to I want to make sure we get to some of this juicy material. So all right. Um unless you see like a real point that has to come out, I'm just trying to gloss over kind of the first five or six steps you set in the groundwork. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Let's do it. No, no. So that's all right. Uh, so faith crises are neither good or bad. Um yes. okay, yeah. yeah. So that was that was the thing, is um kind of like in um, in scientific inquiry, you're trying to understand that you have biases and then work to overcome them. And the goal here is if, if you are really trying to seek truth, then you have to sort of step back and say, okay, I need to start from ground zero, not assume that I already know the truth, and then challenge the claims and the assertions on some basic fundamentals of, of evidence and look for the truth. And if I am already in possession of a belief and that belief is false, then when I explore the evidence, if the evidence points to my belief being false, I need to be open to accepting that conclusion. Otherwise, I might have started from a false point and am simply blinding myself to acknowledging it. And so fixing a faith crisis, if you hold on to a false belief is not good. It keeps you trapped in a false system. And so that was kind of just under laying that out and we'll explore later that the way you do that is to don't imagine yourself in your own religion, imagine yourself in some other religion that you're not married to so that you would be okay with discovering that it was false because you haven't over-identified with it. Yep. And then you mentioned that a faith crisis is sort of no man's land. And I think that's the cognitive dissonance. You're stuck yeah. between these two ideas. One is that your church is the true church and, and the other is that your church is, uh, is not like these concerns are, are, seemingly real they seem to have weight to them in terms of the rationale and the logic and your inner battle to kind of figure out how you resolve this uh this idea of cognitive dissonance that you can resolve it one answer would be you said in the article was reconciliation resolving one's yeah. concerns sufficiently to stay faithful or impeachment the concerns are legitimate and dictate a change in one's beliefs um or to take a stand against one's faith and then you mentioned that when one takes the perspective of helping their friend who's in a false church, those claims, uh, the church, I'm sorry, let me say it again. When one takes the perspective of helping their friend who is in a false church that claims to be true, reconciliation can be seen as placation, meaning that you're just smoothing things over, you're allowing them to stay, but the church really isn't true. Or impeachment becomes liberation, right? You freed them from this church that you know yeah. isn't true. They've They've sought out uh, examining the claims that are bothering them. They decide that it doesn't add up. And so they're able to step away and uh, that they're liberated. Yeah. Um, 
So now you create this scenario and I want to read what you wrote because I, I think it's very well written and I'll put the triangle up on the screen here. Let me um, change the screen to this, whoop, that, and there. Um, and then you can say whatever you want about this, but you said, imagine that you are a member of some other religion and got from that perspective Oh, imagine that you are a member of some other religion, and from that perspective, we are going to evaluate how you would counsel a loved one who has gotten involved in some different religion which you knew to be false from your own perspective. So if you're a Jehovah's Witness, I want you to pretend you're a member of the Unification Church, also known as the Moonies, and your son was recruited into the and your son was recruited into the Church of Scientology. If you're a Scientologist, imagine that you're a Jehovah's Witness and your daughter was taken in by the Moonies. If your religion isn't listed here, just select one of these three. Play make-believe for the rest of this exercise. Take a look at the triangle of dubious religions displayed here. If you imagine that you are in one of the religions, you can look out at the other two and know for sure that they are both false. This is because each of these religions has mutually exclusive worldview and truth claims, I would say, with the other. If the Jehovah's Witnesses are true, then Scientology and the Moonies are false. If the Moonies are true, then the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Scientologists are bunk and so on. And then you say this thing. You say, consider how you feel about your loved one who is trapped in one of these other religions. I say trapped because each of these religions are high-demand religious groups. These religions require a great deal from their followers, and there are strong social and psychological aspects that amplify the intensity of a faith crisis. Each of the religions also strongly discourage their members from reading or trusting any material that is not published by their own official sources. These powerful forces keep members from learning about the conflicting issues, asking questions, expressing doubt, minimizing the chance of a fifth faith crisis. And I'll just say here, it's so difficult, I think, when you are a believer inside a high-demand religion to recognize that the way in which your religion works is very similar to the way these other religions work. And while we have our own programs and policies and doctrines, it seems like when I've stepped back and I look at these religions and we'll see some of those connections today, that Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Scientology are often using the same mechanisms to create belief. And so I think you, you nailed it, which is it's so important to step out of your own shoes, put yourself into the perspective of somebody else um, from another faith so that you can grasp how those tools are being used on them. And then I think it's so much easier to start connecting the dots and go like, oh, they do that to me too. Uh, any thoughts you have on the scenario that you created uh, here with the triangle? And I think the goal here was try to make it where you could imagine to help somebody out of a system that you can see that they are being deceived and manipulated by without having the burden of trying to protect your own system. Um, you know, we'll, we'll encounter, I think Mormons, originally they would want to disprove and um, debunk other religions with the idea that they could convert you to their own. But then if you start making arguments for the other religion that would also debunk Mormonism, it's a little bit dicier. And eventually they got to the point where they'd say, well, all, all religions have a little bit of the truth. So it's not that we're trying to disprove other religions. We just want you to come and add your goodness to ours. And so they try, kind of try to escape that particular paradigm. But I think a lot of it is just trying to undo the defensiveness that comes trying to protect your own state of, of bias. 
Yeah. And then you said, knowing this information, you would likely feel a great deal of compassion for your son or daughter, and you'd want them to be able to discover the nature of the deception, which is keeping them bound to that false religion. You would want them to have a crisis of faith, not because you want them to experience the trauma that goes along with that crisis, but because you know that in order to escape that false system and to be free and to find truth on their own, they must go through a faith crisis. Um, and so then the next step in the article, you said you don't have to know the truth in order to reject it. I often see, we see these messages sometimes where people are told, like, if you're going to help somebody deconstruct Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, mm -hmm. you need to give them something to replace it. And the reality is you don't. The fact that they've left something that's not true, they are now on a journey and now they're more open to having a chance to run across more truth. Any thoughts there? Yeah, this is, I think this is where this podcast in particular is exploring this concept in a way that you don't see a lot in um, the ex-Mormon world. And that is reflecting on, apart from truth claims of religion, reflecting on what it is that the religion added to and gave meaning to, or, to your life. And then asking the question is, are there good, healthy, productive aspects of the things that religion brought to your life that maybe aren't even necessarily dependent upon the truth claims of the religion, but are found in systems that have evolved over time to help people deal with the hardships of life. And I think the question of analyzing truth claims is different from this question of what are the things that the religion endowed its members with in terms of structure and meaning and purpose, and can we hold on to those things while not um, holding on to false beliefs? I think there's something to wrestle with there, and that's why I've been glad to see this podcast in particular uh, explore those options. This article doesn't go into that, and that really wasn't on my radar, um, but I think it's something that is, is a, a worthy wrestle for people going through this. While, yes, you can deconstruct truth claims and things like that, you really have to wrestle with the human element that remains after you leave one of these um, groups, which is that it did answer a lot of those very human psychological needs. And where are you going to get those answers now is a legitimate question. But I think you're left with a mindset that is open for finding and defining those things on your own terms and not on terms that are dictated to you from this outside source. And I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on that, Brittany. Yeah, that, I mean, that's honestly like a tagline for this entire podcast is like, okay, let's be hesitant on truth claims because there seems to be a lot of um, dogma and truth claims about what God is doing and what God is feeling today and all of that. And it seems to be, you know, most intellectually humble to say we don't know more than we know but then you're right in the sense that religions are doing something there's a reasons that there's a reason that we co-evolved with them and how can we kind of separate this out for people so that people don't swing from fundamentalism into nihilism which can be equally mm -hmm. damaging for people right how can we yeah. find the space in the middle that isn't fundamentalist isn't a cult but still gives people tools to um to live and to live well and to flourish and all of these things. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's really the game that we're trying to play. And there was something I was going to say, but I forgot. So Bill, did you have a thought on that? And it'll come back to me. No, not necessarily. It's, I think it's gonna be interesting as we move forward, because we're going to start to share some examples, but you do right before we get into discussing wood tools, 
you say tread carefully, and, and this is a big deal to me. Watch out for the backfire effect because these high demand religions have taught their believers to see anyone who tries to help that person see the issues as working for the devil, as untrustworthy. They'll be encouraged to disconnect and distance themselves from you. In other words, you'll get shunned. Um, believe, you know, these high demand systems sort of know on the front end that, that there's problems with their history, there's problems with their theology and doctrine. So they have, uh, and, and maybe not even consciously, but they've implemented mechanisms that suggest to the believers that if they want to be a faithful believer, their job is to stay away from critics, stay away from apostates, stay away from people who are posing unanswerable questions and pushing back. Um, and so if you go into a situation wanting to help your child, um, coming on really strong, listing out all the problems, for instance, will probably more often than not have them actually entrenching further into their religion. And so you said to tread carefully. So you set up this exercise, which is basically, if you were in this hypothetical situation where you're a Jehovah's Witness, you know your church is true, and your kid has joined the Church of Scientology, uh, and you want to try to help them to get out of it, you say like, hey, go talk to your leaders. Here's some of the problems. Go Go pose these questions to them and see what kind of responses you get, because these religions have a pattern of how they respond to problems. And this is, and we'll see that this is, this shows up across faiths. Now, each church's uh, instruction to avoid these kinds of questions are obviously going to be different and unique to the church, but the overarching theme that's going on is the same. And so talk for a moment about wood tools, what wood stands for. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can list maybe some of the ones that are on your website that are on there. I think those are good. And then I wanted to play a couple from Mormonism. And then I wanted to play a couple from uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientology and see um, see if yeah. we can kind of talk about those. Yeah. And the, this is, brings up another point of why this, this exercise of putting yourself in one of the religions and your child in another one of the religions is helpful because you could imagine a Mormon who has a kid who's imagining themselves as a Mooney with a kid in Scientology, doesn't want to root their arguments against Scientology in claiming that the Moonies are true. Right. Because that, that wouldn't make sense from the Mormon's perspective. But no. what you want to do is you want to encourage your kid to analyze truth claims and to you want to kind of root their epistemology in a way of looking at truth claims that would be able to discover a falsehood um, and acknowledge it rather than allow cognitive um, the, the the cognitive machinations of their brain to, to overcome it and to diminish that discovery so um, in in doing this though you're, you're asking you're encouraging them you know you have some questions you have some doubts this is the I described as like the first rays of truth potentially cracking through into your loved one's soul so let's just say you know what does your what do your church leaders say? What are the answers that they provide you? And then let's look at those answers and see what they look like. And so this is where we've said, since we've already laid the groundwork that we don't necessarily know if a faith crisis is good or not when you're in it, because you're, you're questioning whether or not you have the truth. And so you look at those claims and see they are simply ways of overcoming doubt, which the goal in that case is just to overcome doubt to assume that you already have the truth, and so doubt is bad, so you need to overcome that doubt. And so if an answer is is targeted and aimed and would only ever allow you to overcome doubt, then that's not actually a good answer because 
because it is not seeking truth. And so if your kid went to the Scientologist and I have these doubts about what L. Ron Hubbard said, and then they told you, well, the problem is you're not doing our demands enough. You need to start doing more auditing session, more training session, and you need to start doing the work so that you will understand. And you'll start to understand and believe once you've done the work, the problem is in you. Well, that's an answer that would keep you trapped if you were in the Jehovah's Witness and you went to the Jehovah's Witness leaders. I have these doubts. And they would say, well, you need to be doing more of X, Y, and Z. You need to go more proselytizing. You need to do more things, and that'll help you overcome your doubt. It's a different thing that they demand of you when you look at the specifics, but conceptually it's the same. It's that your doubts are the result of you not fulfilling your expectations with our requirements. So rather than really analyze your doubts, do more of our stuff. And this, what they're expecting of you intersects with some of our psychological vulnerabilities because we know there is this concept that when you take actions rooted around a belief or an organization or, or your peers, you're more likely to identify with and, and accept those things. And so there's a functional reason that they're doing this that ties into human psychology. But um, that's just one example of a tool or a, an answer to a question that is not focused on truth, it is focused on overcoming doubt. And the assumption under that is they assume they already have the truth. Right. And, it doesn't matter um, what religion it's coming from. Mm -hmm. It's there to placate you into staying in that religion, regardless yeah. of if that religion is true or not. Right. <clears throat> Which is harder to see in your own than when right. you see it in another one. And that's the whole point, this outsider perspective of it. So um, another and example. Love... Go mm -hmm. ahead. I do love how um, you're preparing people for this backfire effect, because I do think that the hardest part of a faith crisis is that you're going through in your own mind, you're going through these kind of truth claims, you're trying to weigh this out. But then at the same time, when you're feeling totally psychologically unhinged, because everything in your life is related to these truth claims, you're also going to be really ostracized. And the people who love you are going to say that you are reading the devil's material, and you've come off the iron rod. And, um, and that is going to be so painful. And that's why so many people at the time when they're the most vulnerable, it's when they're most attacked from the people who love them the most. And so just preparing people for the kind of psychological reasons for that happening so that they don't feel like, why is all of a sudden everyone I love yeah. turning on me? Um, I think just really helps people prepare for, for what's going on psychologically so that they can expect it. Because that was one of the hardest parts for me was that I'm, I'm going through polygamy. This is before podcasts. This was over a decade ago. Mm -hmm. There was no essays. And then I'm getting all these messages from the church and people I really care about and my family. And you start to feel like you're in the Truman show and <laughs> like, it's totally psychologically debilitating because, um, because of all these messages coming at you that starts to make you feel like you're crazy. And like, am I just not seeing things the way that everyone else is seeing them? And so it would have been so helpful to read this and say like, Hey, you can expect this to happen. And this is why. And that's what I love yeah. about kind of preparing people for that. Yeah. All right. So wood tools, ways of overcoming doubt. Um, if you've got your page there handy, why don't you go over a few of these that you've got written down and then we'll talk about a few specific ones out of um, a few religions here. And, and that way we can kind of see how these things overlap from church to church. All right. So I'm just scrolling down to that section here. Okay. So let's see. Um, 
I don't know. There were a couple that I actually received from my stake president. Um, one of them was that uh, it's not important for your salvation. And so you can just put it in a box and don't worry about yeah. it. You know, these questions of Joseph Smith's polygamy, the origin of the book of Abraham, those are godly mysteries that we don't really need to know the nuts and bolts of because that's not part of the core gospel. That's not a primary principle. That is one that you will really need to achieve salvation, and your purpose on earth is to get salvation. So forget those things. Focus on, you know, what at the time was pay, pray and obey. You saw that with, uh, it showed up again in Mormonism with an elder Corbridge who did the primary yeah. and secondary questions, right? And it was yeah. this idea that the primary questions are the, in, which by the way, I'm saying this off of what he said, they're the yeah. invisible things. They're the things you can't prove or show with any sort of data, right? So you go like, we know that Joseph Smith's a prophet and we know the Book of Mormon's the word of God. And so if we know the answers to those questions, is Joseph Smith a prophet? Is the Book of Mormon the Word of God? We don't need to worry about the things like how the Book of Abraham was translated mm -hmm. or uh, why Joseph Smith did so much uh, treasure digging. And we don't need to concern ourselves with the secondary questions. Right. Let's just focus on the primary. And the primary questions are really designed to get you back to the bare bones basics of what you feel good about in the church. And that way you set the problems down and move on. Yeah. Um, okay. Say a few others and then we'll... Uh, sure. Uh, this is the one that I think got me because it really speaks to how you define morality. And that, the, one of them was, if God commands something, then it is right, even if it would otherwise be considered wrong. And this is something where when you're wrestling with learning the, the real history of Joseph Smith, how he practiced polygamy, how he dealt with uh, his critics in his day, um, and you bring up things that the church today would absolutely not tolerate in any of its leaders, and you say, wait a second, why is he doing this? This is what you would expect any religious charlatan to do. I I can't see Joseph Smith as a righteous man of God doing these things. And it's not just that he's doing these things. He, at the time, is saying God commanded him to do these things. Or he's actually, as a prophet, saying things to justify what he's doing in the first-person voice as God or as Christ. And so this answer of, well, whenever God says something, it's right in that context, even if it may be wrong in other ways, is just a get out of free jail card for any moral question that normally, I mean, you want to have tools to be able to discover and impeach a falsely claimed religious authority, and this takes that very tool away from you. Um, and this is where I think a lot of times the answer you'll get is the question of presentism. And they'll say, well, things in the past were different from today, and it's actually a falsehood to hold the past accountable to standards of today. And I think that's very true in looking at human history and the broad sp spectrum of things. But for these religious leaders that are claiming special divine authority and justifying their actions on divine approval and command, then that is something completely different because what they're doing is we're pulling them now outside of time and we're looking at authentic morality. And we're saying, because that by accepting what they claim, you're saying that God is okay with those things. And if God is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, and we would not condone things today, God would not condone them in the past, th that's a deeper question than historical presentism. Um, yeah. I've even gotten, I've even gotten the, the response of, it just makes God greater, because look at all he was able to do with, like, such a shit person, yeah. like, such a terrible person. <laughs> like, it just shows how great God is because he was able to do this with such like a terrible tool. And it's like, 
I can't, you, you, what do you do with that? <laughs> and, and it goes back to, I was going to put this back up here again. You know, if you're in Mormonism, which is outside this triangle, and if any of these reasons were used in any of the other faiths, so for instance, uh, David Miscavige ordering uh, his underlings to lock people up and hold them against mm -hmm. their will. And if you said, well, I mean, I don't know, the 1990s, it was a different time than whatever it is, you know, <laughs> and the reality is we wouldn't accept that. But yeah. when we go like, oh, it's my church. So my prophet manipulated and coerced young girls into intimate relationships. That's okay. But when this group does it like, oh, those are guys are just being really bad. Yeah. And you can't create excuses that only work within your system because if you're the one who's trapped in a false religion, those excuses are only placating you. They don't yeah. give you a way to get out of your own system. So it really, again, is important to see it from the other point of view. Um, go ahead. The, the other, yeah, the other thing that comes up, like on this question of, of, you know, things that God commands are right, even if they are wrong in other contexts, you know, People say, well, it's not unusual in the frontier days for uh, an adult to marry a 14-year-old girl. There was no, like, legal age of consent or anything. Well, that aside, they're trying to tell you that people were okay with it back then, but you're just like, okay, well, if we found some other religious charlatan doing that in some other group that wasn't the Mormons, we would be like, huh, that's not good. But even above and beyond that, the people in the communities around were complaining that Joseph Smith was exploiting young girls that were his wards. Like it was in the newspapers. People of that day also did not think it was right. And so that presentism argument doesn't hold up. But it's this whole divine command morality that not just Joseph Smith, almost every religious charlatan that claims to be a mouthpiece for God at some point will use that status to be acting in God's name and command to override some other moral boundary that we would have. And it's always, well, well I have special divine permission for it or a special divine command. Yeah. So here's one from Mormonism, just a soundbite. Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts, right? So yeah. Dieter Uchtdorf says, doubt your doubts. And there's two problems with this. One is if we look at the triangle, if the Jehovah's Witnesses leaders said, doubt your doubts, yeah. you would go, that's bullshit. Like yeah. you should doubt, you should not doubt your doubts. You should, you should take seriously the uh, criticisms of that church's truth claims, its treatment of others, and you should weigh those on a fair scale because while I think Mormonism's true, I know the Jehovah's Witnesses are not. Mm -hmm. Hence, any claims to against their truth claims should be examined, and you should not just be placated by the idea of doubting your doubts. The second problem is, and I always like taking this out. I've done this before in the podcast, so Britt, you'll just have to deal with it again, and listeners will. But <laughs> doubting is bad. Doubt your doubts is good. Doubting the doubting of your doubts is bad again. Then doubting the doubting of the doubting of your doubts is good. And it goes back and forth like that, right? Because you once you do that exercise in your head and you're like, oh, that actually is true. Then you realize that it was never about searching for truth. It was only about coming up to one answer and arriving at it rather than coming up with the other answer. It yeah. was always about the conclusion rather than the actual journey to, to figure things out. Yeah, and this is where people have said that essentially what what these coercive organizations are doing is they're trying to capture your rational mind. And they're trying to subvert it and distort it in a way where it will give you the idea that you are an independent and free thinker, but it's planted these ideas that if, if your thoughts ever lead to a point that is dangerous to your devotion to them or your commitment to them or your belief in them, then it's going to add a wrench into the works that will let you not get to that conclusion. 
And this and, is where we get anti-intellectualism, which yeah. is a really interesting movement of like, you know, we're so afraid of this cognitive dissonance now that we're just going to, anyone who's educated is satanic. And so we have this anti-intellectual yeah. movement in not only these kind of smaller cults, but in just kind of religion or Christianity in general of, if you go and get more education, then you are less trustworthy, which is, it's just yeah. <laughs> such an interesting idea, but it, that has to happen. We see why that would have to happen. Yeah. And you could look and say, oh, it makes sense that if Jehovah's Witnesses go to college, then they're going to end up leaving their faith because when they go to college and they learn to think rationally and they re-examine the claims of the group. No, of their... it's those liberals. It's those yeah. liberals and their devil agenda taking the but kids away from Jehovah's Witnesses. What does that mean <laughs> then when, because the, we would look at if, if Scientology or Jehovah's Witness set up a university where they were going to have faithful members of their organization be the professors, and they were going to make sure to teach things that were in line with the teachings, we'd look at that and we'd say, well, that makes sense. They're just trying to maintain the indoctrination into higher education spheres. Um, we don't do that at BYU, though. Okay. Of course not. Uh, all right, so the other one I want to put up here, this one is uh, one that I saw years ago and I thought was really interesting. Um, These are yeah. my people. So don't be bogged down. These apostates and be careful on the internet. Uh, we were talking about that this weekend with friends. Oh, my word, uh, how many times do I have to tell you, be careful? You know, going here, going there, they'll suck you in. See, uh, with some of this stuff, it can seem so innocent. We're just warning you. That's all we can do is admonish. Stick with what we have authorized, you'll be safe. Yeah. You wanna go out there, it's at your spiritual risk. These One of the commenters in the, in the stream here said that fear is at the root of a lot of this, and you can see them really playing to that, wanting to cast fear about where it will lead you if you start looking into unapproved sources, and that theme shows up. If you talk to any former member of any of these high demand groups. They'll talk about how the group tried to plant the seeds of fear about looking for information anywhere other than official sources. So, And he's doing the dance there where they can say, we never prevented anyone from, you can look anywhere. We're just letting you know, be careful because you mm -hmm. might be deceived. And that little seed of fear then colors how you approach it. And then it gives them the air of deniability. We don't control people. We give people their agency. But we color it and we we plant this little bit of manipulation into it there's something else too every religion has its own uh tone of voice and its own <laughs> way of talking and we grew up and again i didn't i was a convert but i'm going to speak generally we grow up in the say the mormon church and we know what we know what god's leaders are supposed to dress like we know what god's leaders are supposed to sound like and when we hear another person from another religion talking there's something in us that goes like, mm, no, that's not yeah. it. That's not it. <laughs> and so while that message, you could change a word or two, and that message could have came right out of Mormonism. Yeah. Um, but because it's tone, because of, you know, the camera equipment's not the best, of, the best in the world, you know, you kind of, when you're in one religion, you kind of pick out your leaders from other leaders and you can easily dismiss the rest of the world. Yeah. But folks, notice that the message the message works inside any one of those. Stay away from the internet. Don't trust yeah. it. All we can do is warn you, admonish. You know, you use 
these religious terms so people are connected to the theology and the scriptures they've been taught. You know, they he knows when he says the word admonish that they know what admonish means and it means a certain thing within the Jehovah's Witness theology and and the scriptures that they focus on and anyway. Yeah. And we have um, an example in the Mormon Church of Neil Anderson saying, you know, there is no truth filter on the internet. And, you know, plenty of examples of uh, them advocating against going to Google for searching for your answers and rather going to the scriptures or going to prayer for answer to um, your doubts and your questions. Um, and then, like, even in some of my subsequent work after um, writing this article, I partnered up with a former Jehovah's Witness and a former Scientologist, and what the former Scientologist will say is that a lot of the Scientologists don't know all of the things that we are familiar with about Scientology's teaching because they have been warned against getting on the internet and exploring those areas. And when you watch um, Leah Remini's documentary series and kind of true life series on um, aftermath of Scientology, she'll say the same thing. She didn't know all this stuff, and it was only once she left that she started looking on the internet and seeing what was out there that she realized how deep the deception went. And so information control or milieu control is um, a big part of how the answers to your questions will be shaped by ways of overcoming doubt rather than pursuing truth. Every one of these religions imposes that they are a better source of truth for information on the issues around their religion and the religion itself than going to the internet. So on some level, Neil Anderson is right when he says the internet doesn't have a truth filter. It has all the information there, both you can watch videos on the earth is flat, you can watch videos on the earth is round. It really is up to you to sort through the information, figure out what is most credible, and then make a reasonable, logical, rational choice about which beliefs hold the most water. But he's saying it as if the church is very clearly giving you the truth without any problems. And, yeah. and that's very slighted because when you dive into LDS church history or Jehovah's Witness church history or Scientology church history, what you find is that there are a lot of problems that aren't discussed in the correlated material. There are a lot of problems that have happened that the leaders aren't going to mention. And that even when spaces come up where these things seem to have a perfect moment to be addressed, these leaders seem to avoid ever having conversations around issues that are going to lead to people losing faith. And so inside the church, you never get the full dinner table with all the plates of information being served to you. And so what he's making, Neil Anderson, what he's making the internet to be is this place you can get lost and there isn't any way to know what's true and what isn't. In reality, he's saying it's a, he's, he's saying it's a negative thing, but in reality, it's a good thing that we have all the information available and each one of us gets to go and read and think and discover having all the information at our fingertips because nowhere else in any entity, any system, any group, you're getting a very one-sided argument generally. And while the internet is certainly flawed by having too much information in a sense, it's it, having all the information available is really the only way to figure out what's real and what isn't. Um, you're still going to make, some people are going to make bad decisions on that information. All of us do on something, but you have to have all the information to be able to make an informed decision about what you're going to believe. Yeah. And I would add to that, um, having all the information available and also having spent some time considering how you determine truth and how you detect falsehood. Um, because 
there are some more sophisticated defenders of the church that understand this problem because um, what Neil Anderson is doing is he's making the assumption they already have the truth. And so the church's truth is the standard by which you determine what in the world's claims are true. Um, but there's like Jacob Hansen is an example of somebody who's seen this problem and the way that he's come overcome it is said, well, we are going to define for doubters epistemology, which is the system of how you determine what knowledge is and how you discern truth from error or from falsehood. And he said, well, you know, there's different ways of analyzing things, but in addition to empiricism and evidence and falsification, all these other things, he's added one which is spiritual confirmation. And so if we allow spiritual confirmation to be part of our truth-determining mechanisms, and then we say that spiritual confirmation of religious things and claims is more important and more valid than any other form of truth, then we can put on the veneer of having a legitimate epistemology that would work for the rest of you know, the claims that aren't in conflict with the Church's claims. But as soon as there's a conflict with the Church's claims, then that spiritual dimension to epistemology becomes an overriding factor and it keeps you placated. Yeah, and yeah, this here's... is why the church had to do the essays, right? Because there was a time when the internet um, mm -hmm. had all these stories and then there was kind of nothing from the church addressing these things. So when it's like, go to approved sources, it was like there was no approved source to even talk about this. And so they had to create it <laughs> to at least say, actually, we do have an approved source. Um, it's over here, hidden on our website that we never yeah. talk about, but it's there if you need it. That almost no leaders Google. read. That yeah, yeah, that nobody nobody read, and it's like not. Oh, hidden. We don't have any lessons on it or whatever. And that but would it, be another. Wanted to have it like it's there. There is yeah. a church-approved source for this, so that people didn't have to go to the internet. And then I also love this comment that publicly we say, you know, don't Google stuff, but then we, you know, the church behind closed doors would have stocks <laughs> in Google and very much working with SEOs. Spends billions of dollars probably. Billions on yeah. SEOs and, and so uh, very interested in the, in the internet doing well. So that's always and, an and interesting you, dynamic. You just brought up a great example of another wood tool, which is that, yes, there are issues, but these fine, credentialed, educated people who are smarter than me, smarter than you, they've looked into these issues and they maintain their faith. So there are faithful ways you can trust their testimony, put your questions to rest because these even smarter people have looked into it and they're okay with the church. And that's just another example of a way Absolutely. of overcoming that. That's how our brains work with hierarchies. Yeah. Like someone smarter has figured it out and, yeah. and we all have to do that to some degree. I mean, yeah. we can't all be experts on anything. I, I don't know that the earth is round. I'm trusting a lot of smarter people than me to know that. I've never done an experiment by myself to figure that out. So we all have to do that to some degree. And then just kind of playing on that kind of hierarchy that we already have in our brains. But you but, pointed out it's a wood mm -hmm. tool, because if you look if, in the Church of Scientology, is there anybody who knows the deep history and stays? Yes. Jehovah's Witnesses, is there anybody? Are there apologists there who know the problems, know the issues, have workarounds and good answers? Yes. Um, most religions have people who are on some level aware of the issues and who continue to stay believing. Continuing to believe false beliefs isn't a sign that your church is true. I mean, and every church has them. Uh, so you have to have a different way to get at it. Like you said, the wood tools are not it. Here's another uh, Jehovah's Witness one. We have enemies. For one thing, 
we must reject apostate lies and the false stories of other opposers, which are designed to sow doubt and weaken faith. Satan is very... Yeah, yeah there's... Uh, I think you're muted, Bill. Sorry, sorry. So you can't just not trust the internet. You also can't trust the apostates. Anybody who's left is full of lies. But again, that works in every one of those. It's a yeah. wood tool. Um, here's another soundbite from Mormonism. It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. That works inside every one of those three circles. Yep. If you can't criticize David Miscavige or the governing council or whoever's running the Moonies today, <laughs> I want it odd that you, you know, the Moonies is kind of this weird thing to me with, I don't even, maybe one day I'll have you back on and we can just discuss the Moonies so I can get informed on who they are. Well, if, sort of, yeah, I think if you read some of Steve Hassan's work and his story, yeah, it will sound around That's all I know the about the Moonies is from his work, yeah. Yeah. But the idea that you can't criticize a church leader, it works within every one of those. There's, um, you know. Give Brother Joseph a break. Yeah. You could give Brother L. Ron Hubbard a break. Yep. You could give David Miscavige a break. You could, what's the the founder of the Moonies? It's like a three word. Uh, Sun, yeah, Sun Moon Moon or Sun yeah. Moon. So you can give him a break. You can give, uh, uh, what was the, the the cool Jonesville. You could give, uh, yeah. you know, give them a break. But the reality Jim is Jones. that works everywhere. It's it's only designed to placate you. It's only designed to have your cognitive dissonance go away for you to feel enough shame mm -hmm. and fear that you go back into either believing or pretending to believe so you don't disrupt anybody else around you. And I'm a fan yeah. of giving people a break. Like we can give people a break, but when you say that you're on a different sphere because you're speaking for God, like, okay, like you've applied a different rubric for yourself than yeah. the average person. And so, you know, you've already done that yourself. So I'm going to maybe judge you a little bit differently than just the average person where I just yeah. would want to give them a break because you have made a truth claim about yourself that puts you in a different sphere, a different sphere between you and me. Yeah, it's another articulation of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, but that's because you've gone above and beyond the, the standard of judgment that we would apply to everyone else. Yeah, here's another little clip from that same video. Faith is a product of the Holy Spirit. It's a provision from Jehovah to strengthen us, whereas doubt is a tool of the devil designed to weaken us. How's that, how's that any different? Doubt your doubts. And, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's the same thing. These religions use the same tools. They give them a little different articulation. Maybe there's a different label given to it, a different word given to it. But these religions all use the same tools. And when you're a believer, if I'm a believer inside the Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm hearing him encouraging me to have faith, not to trust apostates, don't trust the internet. Um, to to know that doubt is the enemy of God. Uh, but again, that message comes in every one of these religions that's trying to, that puts a lot of responsibility on people and operates out of kind of fear, manipulation, and shame. Yeah, I, I imagine you could take these quotes from these different leaders and just write them down in text form. Don't include who they are, 
and then do mm. the man on the street thing to BYU students or anyone and just say, oh, that'd be who, who said this? <laughs> because that statement both from both of those leaders would work depending on whichever religion that you're in. And, and that would kind of expose that is, it is, you know, a specific way of answering questions that is designed to shut down doubt and yeah. to stop questioning and to stop thought. That would be a great project for like, did the Nazis say this or, <laughs> you know, someone from your church and just have them like, ooh, I don't know. <laughs> would that be so juicy? And every uh, religion has their terms too. Like Scientology says suppressive person. Yeah. You know, it's a, here's a suppressive, here's an SP. And, you know, Mormonism uh, says apostasy and, you know, every religion has their own little twist on words, but they're all trying to have their members feel fear over uh, people who come to them with criticisms of the church and to feel shame for losing their own faith that they'll pretend so they don't disrupt anybody else. Um, anything else on your list that kind of stands out? And then otherwise, we'll move into steel tools really I want to do mystery. To... Let's do mystery. That is a mystery which God uses to test our faith. I feel oh, like yeah. this one needs to get called out because what happens is, and I'm okay with you saying God is mysterious. Like if you are kind of agnostic and just say, oh, this is all kind of mysterious to me, I have no issue with that. But it's such an interesting card that you can play because you can say, with gay people, I'm absolutely sure what God thinks about this. I'm absolutely sure where they go to heaven. I'm absolutely sure this is not okay. And then when you kind of dig into it a little bit, you get the mystery card. Well, it's mysterious, you know? And yeah. so it's this game where you can play where you can, when you want God to be sure of something, then you're sure. And if it gets a little dicey and you start sensing the cognitive dissonance, you just play the mystery card. God is mysterious. And even with morality, well, God's morality is an our morality. And so it's like, so we're going to be judged by a morality that we don't even agree is good and we don't even understand. And it's a card that I just wish was off the table because it's it's just a way to shut down when someone's feeling cognitive dissonance. Do you notice, you, you kind of hit on this, the idea that something's a mystery only seems to be used when they know their back's against the wall and they're losing. It's... It's not like it's the middle ground where, well, we don't really know. It's like, hey, here's the evidence the book of Abraham's not from God, and suddenly that's a mystery, you know? Um, it seems like it's a cop-out uh, to use it because they're not using it actually in the spaces where there's not enough evidence to go either direction. Right. They're using it in the spaces where the evidence is monumental against their claim. It's and they another get-out-of-jail-free card yeah. of just like, whoop, mystery. Or, or they're trying to justify some moral transgression that they could not in any other way justify. And so like a big common one in the um, kind of Protestant Christian realm is the Abrahamic test. And so they'll invoke the Abrahamic test and say, well, this is akin to the Abrahamic test. And that's where there's some moral atrocity that they're trying to justify based on some mysterious purpose of God. And the way that you are a good person is you submit to the Abrahamic test. And that's, you know, the story that was invoked when Joseph Smith um, proposed polygamy to some of his close counselors was that it was an Abrahamic test. And you can watch documentaries of other you know, Christian offshoot groups. And that, that concept is a really dangerous concept because it always gets invoked really as one of these mysteries of God to, to override your normal moral revulsion at things that they would try to do. And you hit on this earlier too, this idea that, you know, the, the quote in Mormonism is the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And you talk about polygamy, which is the easiest kind of example to go to this idea that 
you know, God seems to have allowed the saints to uh, operate in a manner where older adult men could manipulate, coerce, and enter intimate relationships with teenage girls. And on in 2023, we all go like, that's absurd on lots of reasons, right? Like a kid doesn't have a fully formed uh, functioning brain. The, they don't, they're not really entering these things with uh, informed consent. They're not really capable of that. They don't really understand how the world works. They're being uh, sort of, um, well, I don't want to say sort of, but they're being manipulated into uh, these relationships. And we can see like why that's not healthy to have that happening in 2023 in a modern world. And as you point out, believers want to go like, well, like that's a different time. Um, there were lots of young girls that got married back then. But what it also requires you to do, and they don't really want to address this, is what is God doing? So for instance, uh, in one of the situations, uh, the founder of Mormonism takes a young girl into his home, treats her as his, as her basically her foster dad, takes care of her as if she is one of his daughters. And he even says that. These are as if one of my daughters. And then you have to buy into a God who then rearranges that he allows this foster father, foster daughter relationship. And then God comes in and goes, you know what? On second thought, I'm now going to have this foster dad enter this relationship where he's intimate on some level. And this is going to be one of his plural wives. And Mormons don't really want to debate it from that angle. They'd much rather deal with like times are different. God is, you know, God is not necessarily what we're pointing to. We're pointing to people. But when you claim to be the true church and you claim to be the voice of God, your leaders have to operate in a way that validates that they're receiving revelation in such a way that you can trust it. And so hence you, if there something comes up where you're like, no, that just doesn't seem right. No matter what age we're in, those leaders still have to be accountable for those behaviors because for some reason, God seemed not to be participating there. Yeah. Well, and you can imagine how someone would say, well, actually, uh, apostate Bill Rill you know, Gilbert and Sullivan's Opretta, the Mikado, written in the 1800s or the early 1900s, uh, included the character of Coco, who was a ward of the state, who, who was a character who took in wards of the state and was foster parent to a young girl who, in the text of the movie or of the Opretta, he was going to marry. And so it was clearly not out of the ordinary for someone who had a foster parent relationship to enter into marital relations of them. So QED, your argument is bunk. Uh, you're a dirty apostate. Yeah. But I think that's particularly where it's, you just have to look at the, I just lost my camera. I don't know what the deal is there. There we are. Uh, you just have to look at those metaphysical claims. It's, it's not the age disparity is not the worst part of the uh, Helen Mark Kimball thing. The, uh, the worst part of the foster child thing is not the foster thing. It's that in order to obtain these children as brides, he had to invoke the name of God and special permission and special divine authority of God to do that. And it's in those claims that then when you look at other religious charlatans that have done the same thing, if you're going to impeach those other religious charlatans but not impeach Joseph Smith, then you have to say, why does he get a special exclusion from that? And all of the answers that would allow you to give him that special exclusion are these ways Which of overcoming was. doubt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's other religions that have other ways out of it that Mormonism doesn't. So if, if God is just 
kind of spirit, then God can only entice and God can't actually step in and stop Joseph from doing this. And so other yeah. Christian other Christian churches have ways of getting around that, but you don't have that available in Mormonism because if God is a body and is able to stop things and even sends angels at various times to talk to Joseph. So there is a direct line of message. So you can't just say, oh, it's Joseph's free will because he had a flaming sword and an angel yeah. tell him that he had to do this. Well, then if you have a messenger, you could have actually given a message, right? And so you don't have a way out of that one the way that sometimes other religions that keep God more mysterious can sometimes get out of those problem of evil kind of situations. But that's not really available here because you you said you've had a metaphysics where you're in direct communication with God, yeah. which means that you can't just say, well, God, you know, he tried to entice Joseph, but Joseph chose otherwise. Well, there was other instances where God was talking directly to Joseph. So he says, which means I have to judge you on that claim. Yeah. And I think the DNC 111, I think it is now, is kind of the classic example that you bring up where it's like this whole revolution, revelation about God telling Joseph Smith that there's gold in the basement of some widow that died in Salem, Massachusetts. And so it's this very tangible, worldly thing that you, that you could just say, like, why is God giving him very specific revelations about this, but then not mentioning... Uh, yeah, know, when Lucy Walker, slavery. yeah, or Lucy Walker situations happening, and Joseph's giving her twenty four hours. God could go, hey, mm. like putting a short time frame on a fifteen year old girl to make a a really big important decision probably isn't that healthy. It's not going to age fact, well. Trust me, it's not going to age well. <laughs> no, and the fact that she's fifteen, you probably ought to stick with just like women of age instead of children. It's not going to go. Yeah, it's not going to go well. And somehow when God shows up and when he doesn't are such strange juxtapositions uh, against each other. Yeah. All right. Tell us about steel tools just so folks can understand what uh, tools really do work. And then we'll go into a couple of images that I've got to kind of show some similarities in these religions as well. Okay. Well, the steel tool concept was to try to um, juxtapose something against the ways of overcoming doubt, because the question still remains, well, if, if those answers aren't good for trying to overcome doubt and get through this faith of faith crisis, um, then, then what do you use to analyze these questions? And that is where I set up a paradigm. I was reaching a little bit for the acronym, but it's, um, the goal is seeking truth through education, erudition, and and if needs be, liberation. So that's this S-T-E-E-L. And the idea is that you want to open up the avenues into which you can ask questions and look for answers and, um, you know, seek people out or seek books or sources out, and that you can analyze them with your own mind using your own judgment and not necessarily having to confine either your analysis or your conclusions to the restricted list of approved conclusions that the church may give you. And that if you come to the determination that it's not for you and it's been impeached in your mind, then you are you free yourself to be able to step away from it. And it's something that's very different. You can just see conceptually, you know, there's these clips of Carrie Muelstein saying, well, I start on the questions of the Book of Abraham. I start with the assumption that Joseph was a prophet and the Book of Abraham is true and everything is real. And then I only look at, at evidence that fits that criteria. Well, that limits you a lot. It never allows you to acknowledge something to be false. And so 
if he was a Jehovah's Witness, for example, he'd say, well, I, I just start from the conclusion that the statements of the governing body or our founders are true, and then I only allow my analysis to look at that. Well, this is a departure from that type of boxed-in, closed analysis, one that allows you to look at everything everywhere, and if you discover it not to be true, to have the freedom to liberate yourself from it. Mm. And the list of how you take a steel tool approach to questions is considerably shorter because you don't have to do the mental gymnastics that are necessary in the other ones. And so it, it can be something like look at any and all information that you can find from both official and unofficial sources. You know, talk to anyone about your questions and evaluate all answers, both people inside the church and outside the church and former members and dirty apostates. It's, it's not drawing lines about who you can or cannot talk to. It's allowing you to be open to everyone and to trust to your own judgment what is right or what is wrong. If, if you have an inclination not to accept something as right or wrong, but you've always allowed your inclination to be overridden by the dictates of the leader of the group, free yourself to be able to trust and start to trust yourself a little bit more because that is something that you would know is required if your kid was trapped in some other group and they always trusted the leaders of the group, at some point you, you have to tell them, listen, start to trust yourself a little bit more so that you can make your own pathway and you're not simply walking a pathway that someone else has confined you to. And then the final one is to kind of allow yourself to follow your conclusions, even if it means rejecting something that you previously thought was true. And this, this concept will, is the inverse of another wood tool in that we're, being he we're hearing a lot more from leaders where they say, you know, hold on to the truth that you already know. Don't go back and rehash that old ground. You've already received a witness of the truthfulness of X, Y, and Z. Hold on to that and let that guide be your guiding light as you go forward. And that this is saying, hey, we acknowledge that we are all vulnerable to being misled, to being misinformed or manipulated. And so things that we believed to be true in the past, we need to free ourselves to be able to go back and say, you know what, I was mistaken, I was misled, or I trusted in a authority or an assumption that I now see not to be legitimate. And so I've reformulated my understanding of this concept and, and I'm going to move forward there. Yeah, so that's kind of the steel tool concept. Yep. You can look at all sources. You can talk to anyone about your questions. You can evaluate all answers. You can find out what other people had to say on the same questions. Both current and former members trust your own moral compass for what is right and wrong. Allow yourself to follow your conclusion, even if it means rejecting something that you previously thought was true. Um, so that was the wood tools, steel tools that I wanted to make sure our audience kind of had in their tool bag. Uh, but I also wanted to put a few others up. And so let me put the slide here. While you're working on that, I want to yeah. just point out that when you look at those steel tool things, a lot of it is recentering your autonomy, recentering your rational mind internally in, in yourself. Whereas a lot of the wood tools were built on uh, assuming that you're not able to understand or that God's ways are higher than your ways mm -hmm. or any of these other things that is displacing the the center, the focus of agency, the focus of, of where you're able to draw lines between what is true and false into somebody else rather than claiming it for yourself. And it's something that 
if you've lived your whole life depending on a higher authority, it can be very uncomfortable because you've had a lifetime of instilling doubt in your own mental faculties and your own judgment, and it takes some time to get your footing and to start to trust your own voice more. And so if it's difficult and hard at, at first, understand that that's kind of normal, and you'll, you'll grow, and that's, I think, part of the graduating, maturing process of going through a faith transition is learning to trust your voice a little bit more. Can I ask you a question before you go on, Bill? Can I ask you a question, Jonathan? Sure. Um, I just want to, what do you think about religious moderates for this process? So what I see a lot of people do is, you know, if you're if you're in and you're starting to, okay, I want to use some steel tools. I want to get a bigger picture of, of what's going on. You're probably not going to go from listening to a prophet to Christopher Hitchens, right? Like that's just yeah. <laughs> too big of a jump, right? And mm -hmm. so a lot of people will start out with like a Richard Rohr or a Brian McLaren or a Patrick Mason, these religious moderates who will say, yes, let's look at our doubts, go out into the wilderness. This is a good thing to do. There's a vast history of having dark nights of the soul and finding your own personal relationship with God. And so a lot of people will start there as like a, that's not too far. They're still mm -hmm. Christian-ish or Mormon-ish or whatever it is. They're, they're religious moderates. And that helps them to kind of feel safe enough to maybe start looking at things more um, more productively. And then sometimes people can stay there in that nuanced space. And sometimes that was just one step on the way out. So my question is, how do you feel about religious moderates as far as are they hurting or helping this process? Because on the one hand, they are there as kind of an in-between and a safe place to maybe start to hang out. But then if they are one of those kind of intellectuals with the PhD who's saying, yes, you can be smart and actually stay here, are they actually doing more damage overall? Because um, it allows people to say, well, this smart person is some nuanced Mormon so that I, so then I can stay. What do you think There's about some that? There's a guy named Jeremy Runnels who wrote this document called the CES Letter, and it was responsible for a lot of people learning a lot of the uncomfortable truths of the Mormon church and deciding to leave from it. And he gave a few interviews. In one of his interviews, he said that there are examples of intelligent people who um, have studied the issues, they understand the issues, and they remain faithful, and they're kind of held aloft as the example. And it can seem faith-affirming, but if you listen to those people, their concept of what it means to be Mormon is actually very different from the type of chapel Mormon that maybe somebody who's grown up has only listened to the general authorities has. And so I think we're starting to get a little bit more insight into that. When you start to listen to people like Patrick Mason, you'll realize that his concept of the church is really not the blind obedience concept and the never criticize the leaders concept. He's open to more of those criticisms. And this also extends to even some of the people who are out there in a little more pugilistic fashion, like Jacob Hansen and the Thoughtful Faith people, is that they're willing to acknowledge that some of the prophets have made mistakes in the past and some of them are, are wrong. And I think we're at a point with, um, with Mormonism where the church is in transition, and there was a time in the past, if you go way back to Brigham Young's time, you know, if you did not fall in line, then you could potentially be chased out of town with a Bowie knife, if not blood atoned. Well, we've gotten to maybe the 1980s, where we still kind of demonized and shunned apostates, uh, and it was a, a blight on your family's name. And I think as 
the people leaving the church has just been an inevitability in the lives of a lot of people. The church has softened its stance on that. And this is, I think it's helpful in framing Mormonism versus other things to look at the shunning feature of Scientology and of Jehovah's Witnesses and see what really bad shunning looks like. And then you'll have a softer, uh, I think, reflection on what Mormonism shunning can be like. Certainly there's corners or families that may do it worse than others, but as a whole, the shunning is not as strong in Mormonism. And so part of the evolution of the church, I think, is becoming more willing to tolerate divergent views and different ways of being in the faith, and I think we're seeing that in action. And um, so I think to the extent that people like Patrick Mason and those that are advocating for this moderate approach to the faith are having an effect in softening the views of the leaders or the culture of the faith, I think that can be a good thing. The The difficulty with a faith crisis is that if you go from believing in a very concrete, very OCD kind of way, have a faith crisis that you start to see how the way you've shaped your life around false beliefs is a detriment to you and who you could have been, then you go through an anger phase that makes it really hard to see people like that in anything other than they are the source of the problem. They're making it worse. They're making it harder. They're causing my family to see my faith crisis as something other than the real pain that it is. And I think in my own experience and experience of other people that I've talked to, it's good for us to just say, okay, you're going to feel those really angry, painful feelings, and they're real. You're experiencing them. Uh, keep learning. Keep growing. If you need to distance yourself from voices like that, then do that. And if you're ever able eventually to come back and, and reevaluate the church and voices like that on the other side of those really intense emotional parts of your faith crisis, you may be able to see them and what they do is something a little bit uh, different from when you're in the middle of the faith crisis. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, the the reality, whether or not we like the church, it is like totally enmeshed with millions of people's families, lives, and culture. And so it's kind of an unavoidable part of the landscape for some people and being able to come to terms with it, but maintain your own boundaries, both in your physical interactions, your family relationships, and your beliefs is going to be a healthier healthier way overall, particularly if you have gone on a healthy journey of faith transition, you're going to be able to eventually listen to people make claims like that, see them for what they are, and not feel the hurt or the pain. Just understand this is somebody who believes in a particular way, who's giving voice to that way of believing, and there are other people that will resonate with it. It doesn't hurt me to hear that or to understand that other people may feel like they need that way of approaching the church at this chapter in their lives, and it's different from mine. Um, it doesn't stop you from adding to the discourse by pointing out where some of that logic and reasoning is fallacious. I think the thing that broadens this discussion even more is just to understand that um, in Mormonism, because of the way that it was formed as a very concrete church with concrete claims about authority and historical reality, um, maybe lost some of the ability that other churches have to redefine faith and membership in the church and the concept of the church more around um, a set of values rather than a set of concrete disprovable claims. And so you can see churches more of coming together with like-minded people with shared values and a shared mythology and a shared narrative that you're all able to draw on understanding that nobody has the one, two, true, true, 
truth. Mormonism, because of its founding, doesn't have that, but it's starting to reinvent itself, I think, to embody more of that. And I think a while ago, Bill laid out some predictions that mapped out some things the church was probably going to eventually transform on. And, and almost all of those predictions were moving into that realm of being a more, um, I He's think- He's pretty you, good at that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you're muted you're, again, Bill. You're muted, Bill, but you're quite the wizard when it comes to I think to about that. a third of those have come to pass already. So, yeah. by the way, the, the story I told, I'll tell the truth here on this podcast. A story I told was that I had an insider source for that, but there was no insider source. Me and my buddy Chris Bloxham sat in an office for about 40 minutes, and we just said, what if the church, what's the church going to do? Over the next 20 years, 30 years, what's it going to do? The insider and, source uh, was Chris Bloxham. Yeah, that's, that's my, there's your prophet. <laughs> No, we, we do have you hear that? Source. Bill Real is a liar. <laughs> two of those things came from the inside source. We do have an inside source, but two of those things came from him. But the rest of the list was just me and Chris sitting in an office and guessing at what would happen. All right, let me throw a few of these up. Um, all right, so the first one I thought of is I watched it. By the way, I watched a lot of Scientology this morning. It's why my hair looks so disheveled. I, you know, I had to run my fingers through and just scratch my head a few times and that kind of thing. But in this video, it was like a six-minute video, and it just praised uh, L. Ron Hubbard up and down. And I'm going to make it full screen so I can see this a little better. But L. Ron Hubbard, the most published and translated author of all time, he was the nation's youngest Eagle Scout at the age of 13 and twice journeyed to Asia before the advent of commercial flight. He attended America's first class on nuclear physics. This came right out of Scientology's own website on YouTube, their own YouTube channel. Um, was a pioneer at the dawn of American aviation, led expeditions into remote islands as a member of the famed Explorers Club. Is it really famed? I've never heard of it until Scientology. Was a giant in the golden age of pulp fiction. I, I love that they own a little bit of his, uh, the Colorful magic past, he created yeah. with Scientology comes out of his doing like comic this books This looks like and a stuff. biography yeah, of like Indiana Jones or something. <laughs> Sci-fi uh, pulp novels. Um, let's see here. I gotta wait for the thing to disappear. Right, what's what's that middle bottom one say? I, he is was a master mariner, licensed to captain vessels on any ocean, and the United States naval officer who commanded uh, corvettes, corvettes during World War II. You know, every faith takes its founder and makes them supernatural and magic and special. The truth is, some of these things have partial truths to them. But if we were to sit down with an actual historian who doesn't have a bias, or at least not a strong one, and we asked him to share the life of L. Ron Hubbard, it would be a mix of good behavior and bad behavior. Uh, some of these accomplishments maybe being sort of interesting and significant, and some of these being completely embellished and not not having occurred the way they'd like you to believe it did. Um, but that's what they do, and Mormonism does it. I mean, you look at Joseph Smith, we don't touch any of the uh, atrocious aspects of his behavior. We don't, we don't, we tell the, for instance, we tell the story of Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner and she has her, her dress and she's capturing all the book of commandments in it when the press gets destroyed. But nobody ever tells you that when she was 12 years old, she was approached by Joseph Smith and told she'd be a plural wife someday. Nobody tells you that she ended up being a plural wife of Joseph Smith. It's interesting that the church tells a story about how this girl saved the book of commandments, but intentionally fails to ever inform you that she is one of the wives of your founder. 
It's such a discrepancy between what you're told and what you're not. And to notice that all churches, specifically high demand churches, do such a thing. Uh, so there's that one. Any thoughts on how amazing Ron Hubbard is? None from me. <laughs> well, I would just say that there's a grandiosity that tends to be a part of a lot of these religious founders. So here, using the trappings of his military career and all of these other things to elevate who he is in the minds of his followers, like it, it's always funny when you study history, when you when you only listen to the church narrative about Joseph Smith, he's a poor farm boy, and he was humble his whole life, and he was only looking out for the widows and all these other things. He's bold at times, but only when needing to reprove the wicked. But then you go back in your history, and you're like, yeah, the, the last few years of his life in Nauvoo, he went around wearing a military uniform, and he insisted everybody call him, uh, you know, co Commander or General Smith, not the prophet, not the president, because he took his rank or, as or the highest rank. Or yeah. future president Smith. Because those were the things that mattered, but that's because those were the things that would elevate him most in the esteem of people. And it's just, I think that whole learning about the narcissistic dimension of a lot of these religious charlatans can make you understand some of their things. So like, you know, the whole prohibition against loud laughter in the church, you can see like, you know, the, what, what is poison to a narcissist? Well, laughing at them. And I was in a discussion with uh, Chris Shelton, who does a lot of work in the Scientology realm, and I mentioned this about Joseph Smith, and he's like, oh, you're not gonna believe it. L. Ron Hubbard had this same thing where he prevented, like for forbade people from laughing at him. And, um, and you could get in trouble for that. So I, I think there's an, you know, there's a little bit of the signs of the narcissism that you would expect to. And as, uh, you know, as a Scientologist, you would look at, at L. Ron Hubbard, you revere him. He's a great man. Look at all these great things. But then you would look at the life of Joseph Smith and his pretensions to grandiosity, and you'd say, look at that peacock, that strutting peacock narcissist. You wouldn't see it in your own. But here is outside of both of them, you could just see both of them and be like, yeah, that, that about figures, you know. Look at the comment, you know, sounds like he's done more, save Jesus Christ. You know, it's, <laughs> yes. it sort of is. It's sort of that idea that he's such, he's, he's accomplished so much and done so many good things. We ought to just have reverence for him. Um here I put, and Scientology, by the way, is almost doing what Mormonism does. It's going to all these population centers and opening up a Scientology center, and they have a grand opening. Um, I know that, again, factually, some of the folks who work in these centers are sort of held against their will. Yeah. Uh, these centers look a lot like LDS temples. Um, I, th I think they have that kind of grandiose to them, that, that kind of that religious... Um, grandiosity to them. Uh, and I always found Scientology using the cross sort of interesting, but it does. Uh, it does do that. They have a good marketing department. They're the first ones that came out with the uh, the yellow vests and the helping hands type oh, of Oh, we'll concept. get to that here in just a second. So, um, But temples, you know, being put everywhere. I mean, there's so many temples now that have been announced but not built. Um, and, and think of it this way, too. Both places serve as a place that the believers go to get the saving ordinances. Um, Scientologists go to these centers to work with the e-meter. Uh, that's one of the big kind of light bulb things within their faith of how they get extra spiritual benefit that doesn't occur to other people of other places in the world. Like that's what Scientology has to offer. And if you're a Scientologist, you think highly of the tools that you have access to by being a believer and going into the Scientology Center. As a Mormon, you go into the temple to receive certain saving ordinances there. 
But these buildings, while what occurs is under specifics very different, um, the overarching thing that's happening, I'm, I have access to things that are not in the rest of the world. I go to these beautiful buildings, and in these buildings, I get access to those things. And there is something magical that's happening here that if only the rest of the world knew. And, you know, you have to be paying to access both of those tools in either sets of these belief systems. Um, it's not just that one's a Mormon temple and the other one's a Scientology center. It's when you look at the functions and what these things do for the people that believe in it, there's a lot of similarities and overlap. All right, here's yeah, what on, you were mentioning. On that question of yeah. when the churches start to expect money from you, I think that's it can be easy to fall into this idea that, well, anytime a church asks for donations or anything, well, then that's that's sign of their corruption. But I think there's something very materially different from tying your salvation or your uh, position on the ladder to, you know, freedom or whatever they call it in Scientology to things that require payment versus another organization which calls on people. I think they've used the phrase out of a cheerful heart. If you support what we're doing and you want to contribute to what we're doing, then we invite you to donate. It's not tied to your spiritual blessings. It's not tied to your position in the hereafter. It's just part of how you contribute to a community where we're all trying to give put together resources to help build each other up. And that paradigm does exist out there in churches. And so I think that's a healthier paradigm than uh, tying things to salvation. Yeah. And yeah, go, go ahead. I think that's a really good point because I, I don't think that we're saying because um, religions do these things that we all just need to go live in a cave, like yeah. trust no one, get involved in no, get, never give away your money. Don't be a part of a community. Like that's not what there's, that's not what we're saying um, because there is benefits to all of the things that religions do. And so today I still give money to causes that I believe in, but I choose them. I still have voices that, from my bias, I'm going to trust more than other voices. There's no way around that. But I'm choosing what criteria I use for those voices. I still have a spiritual community that I attend. Um, I even sometimes give my time and money to that spiritual community, but I'm choosing to do so. And if I were to step away, um, I would be able to. And and so I yeah I think the answer isn't going to a cave. It's hey let's let's bring this down a little bit. So it's a little bit more healthy for people. Yeah. yeah, and, and that ties to, I mean, Scientology and Jehovah's Witnesses here want to give off the impression that they're doing a ton of humanitarian work. And I don't think they're really convincing the world super well, but they certainly, I think the main mechanism is to convince insiders, believers that your church is doing a lot of humanitarian aid. And I also would just note then kind of alongside that is the idea that both these churches are stockpiling tons of money. Uh, Scientology has a ton of money. If it, if you were to know how much it has saved up per member, like how much money is saved aside based on the number of members in Scientology, it's enormous. And the number, the amount of money saved in Mormonism per member is enormous. And I don't mean the members have it. The churches have it. They're investing it. They have it saved up in savings accounts. Oops, let me go back. Savings accounts. And like Mormonism's got $150 billion uh, tied up in stock markets across the world. Um, and then that doesn't even count all of its land holdings and building properties and all the other things that it owns. So here you pointed out, John, they've got their own uh, Scientology volunteer minister. So whenever there's a natural disaster, the local Scientologists throw their yellow shirts on. That's and go out and pick up trash and yeah, 
And and then you look at Mormonism did the same thing. Um, got the yellow shirts, Mormon helping hands, and the church wants to be seen as doing this. But in reality, when a natural disaster happens, it's the local membership that throws these yellow shirts on and goes and does something. Um, yeah. Anyway, just I just think it's interesting how these religions try to kind of copy each other or do the same kinds of things. Yeah, um, I think the examples of, I, you know, what was it, the the um, I'm a Mormon campaign was also kind of a carbon copy of a Scientology campaign that tried to yeah. put out positive depictions of Mormons that were just like you and I, normal yeah. people. Scientologists are just like and you I'm and a, me. Yeah, I loved yeah. the one. There was one where it's like, I'm a rock star and I'm a Mormon. And it's like, yeah. you guys, you're trying so hard. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Okay. On the top left corner of this one, folks, the image on the screen is a ton of media outlets from these various uh, religions. Top left corner, Scientology... Uh, broadcasting uh, tower there. They've got their own television channel, the very bottom middle. That's their television channel. Got an all new season of New Horizons. Um, you can watch live. I watched about 40 minutes this morning live. It was uh, extremely interesting. And I could pick out wood tools about every 25 seconds or so. <laughs> um, but if so, on the top left, the Scientology Tower, middle, bottom, Scientology Station. Uh, Freedom is a Scientology periodical. Of course, Mormonism has its enzyme. Jehovah Witnesses have its watchtower. Uh, out here in Utah, the church has, of course, the uh, Deseret News. Uh, it also has kind of a part of that, which is the church news, but also sort of separate. Uh, KSL Radio is Mormon-owned. The Jehovah Witnesses have their own TV station. You see on the very far right there, JW. Uh, that's their television channel playing a video. And, and again, it's not that these guys are using this. I mean, some of it's proselytizing, but mm -hmm. far and wide, this is used so that members and believers are all funneled into looking at correlated material that reassures them that they're on the true path. And it kind of controls, you know, I remember being a Mormon and the Enzyme magazine was important and reading the church news was important. And I knew not to trust outside sources of information. And part of that impetus in me to not trust outside information was that I knew that there was inside information available. And yeah. so these entities all create very uh, faith affirming insider material uh, in order to keep believers sort of hinged on that uh, insider baseball. I like this comment too. I was a stake emergency communications specialist. We were told that when the poop hit the fan that only church members were to be led into the building no help yeah. to the neighbors and so it's really interesting no. like you said you know where you have these big yellow shirts it's mormons helping and you have um the church news and enzyme and desert news always saying all the humanitarian things that we're doing but it's always like with book of mormons so it is kind of proselytizing and then when things actually happen it's they there's no community involvement. So for example, in Phoenix, Arizona, every church in Phoenix, Arizona, they all participate in this bus system where homeless people can get on the bus in the same place every night and their bus to different churches. And every church will do like a soup kitchen um, for the homeless people in Phoenix. And every church, every denomination in Phoenix does this except for the Mormons. And so it's like, you say that you're, you know, part of the community and helping, but when stuff is actually going down, you, yeah. we do what Mormons do, which is we circle the wagons and we bump 
bunker down and we only help ourselves. So and we throw forty billion dollars into GameStop. All right. So <laughs> next. <laughs> Okay, I thought this was it. I looked at this a few months ago. I looked at the church's website and I thought to myself, I bet the Jehovah's Witnesses have a very similar website. And I went and found the Jehovah's Witnesses website and it has the same kind of look. And uh, again, if you make it full screen, folks, you might be able to read these, but they both have their own newsroom. They both have their will answer your questions. Um, they both have media libraries. Uh, it seemed to me after looking at them that one of them copied off the other. And I know which one did it better because I know which one has more money to do it better. Um, but I thought it was interesting. That's very that interesting, Bill. I have never very seen that. similar looking websites. I went and found Scientology's website. Oop, I don't have it there. It was, it was a little more crazy. It was, <laughs> it was a little cooler looking too, but it was a little more crazy. Uh, but it didn't look the same. But Jehovah's Witnesses and the LDS, by the way, JW.org, very similar to our old name, which still works, LDS.org. Neither one of them want to really use the full acronym because they don't want search engines to be tampered with by the word Mormon or Latter-day Saint or Jehovah's Witness. So they kind of control the fact that by just putting in the acronym, very few people are creating other content with just the acronym. And so they they get to kind of maintain getting you to the right place. Um, the E-meter, which really is their magic power in Scientology, especially early on. It's really the thing they have to offer you until you get knee deep in it and get some milk or get some meat after milk. And you finally learn that there's like thetans and volcano, you know, gods and volcanoes and all that kind of stuff. But early on, you don't get any of that. What you get is these books that are sort of pseudo educational. And then you get to sit down with the E-meter. But it struck me that the E-meter accomplishes two things, for instance, in Mormonism. One is priesthood power. It's the magic. It's the magic that no one else has that can solve real problems for you. And it puts you at a one-on-one -on -one interview with somebody who gets to ask you very personal questions. And if you know much about Scientology, there, there have been accusations that in this questioning, the answers to really difficult topics are maintained and used against you later. Yeah. Um, so this idea that you sit in an interview and you're asked very personal questions, there's sort of kind of a breaking down of what would be normal, healthy boundaries of relationships and people kind of ask you things that you wouldn't normally have to, to answer, but because you think you're in a space with somebody of authority, you now play the game. And so I thought e-meters in Scientology and all the machinations around it seem very comparable to like authority interviews and uh, priesthood power inside like Mormonism. Um, and Jehovah's Witnesses have the same kinds of things as well. Um, missionary efforts, right? You've got the left-hand side there, you've got the LDS missionaries. In the middle, you've got the Jehovah's Witnesses. On the right, every one of these uh, Scientology centers, except for like Las Vegas is only for the celebrities, I think. Mm -hmm. And then there's like one in LA, I think, out of the few that are there that are just for the celebrities. Um, but generally, most places, the public can just walk in. And I noticed how these centers on the right look very much like a visitor center inside of like a Mormon, you know, St. George Visitor Center or some other thing. Like they really try to make these things look very modern, give really cool displays. Notice, by the way, when you go into a Mormon visitor center, the first thing they have you do, and somebody was just telling me this yesterday, first thing they have you do is watch a video. You have to come in and come watch this video and then we'll give you a tour. The whole idea is to have you feel elevation emotion on the front end. And so that way the rest of the tour is now 
uh, impacted by you having felt elevation emotion. Hence and it's always ghost. like, have you ever thought, what are we doing here? Where are we yeah. going? How can I have meaning in life? And you're like, oh, I have thought about those things. Yeah. Like, oh, just here. This is the only place that's really exploring those things. <laughs> There's another dimension. I think it was really surprising to me listening to some former J-dubs about these individuals who are standing next to the little tr trolley thing with all of the pamphlets. Because when we think of, of Jehovah's Witnesses, we usually think of them going door to door. Well, when you go to an event and you see these ones that have this trolley there, they have earned that trolley by doing a lifelong, a whole bunch of high hours of the lower tier, which is the door to door stuff, in order to earn the status to do this. So them doing this is not only a, an expression of their devotion, it's also a reward for them. And it elevates, I mean, it's a, it's a mark of their elevated status in the hierarchy of, of things much to kind of how senior missions it's kind of if, if you're a senior missionary there's something about your life there's something about um you know in the last chapter of your life that you've given enough and to of your life to the church and your devotion that you are you know honored with giving more it's not so much of an egotistical thing it's just something that i think plays a role in helping yourself feel like you've earned a position in your organization that is part of of keeping you there that's really interesting i've had j-dubs come to my this is about a decade ago but they came to my door and i'm friendly and i'm asking questions because i'm if anyone wants to talk about religion you can knock on my door <laughs> anyone at any time like that's fine with me and so it i could see the process a little bit because at the beginning there were people that really didn't know a lot about like I knew more about the religion than they did. And then the next time they came, it would be like one of those people and a different person who seemed mm -hmm. to know a little bit more. And then the next time it happened again, someone else came. And then um, by then, you know, I was pushing back on blood transfusions and some other yeah. things and uh, prophecies and things like that. And then after that, it stopped and they never came again. But I could see like there was a process there where like, hey, I couldn't answer these and there was like another person who had come and then another person who had come. And it was really interesting. There was like a little missionary hierarchy that I was trying yeah. to figure it out. No, I, I did something similar and I focused on the question of shunning and they originally denied it, but then they wanted to come back and they brought in somebody who clearly was higher up on the hierarchy to answer my questions and then stopped after that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. The other thing I'd say here is that the proselytizing effort seems as though from the outsider perspective and even the believer perspective, it seems as though what its real purpose is, is to send somebody out into the world and to try to get converts. And that certainly is a facet. I'm not going to say that's, but it's, I don't think it's the most important facet. The most important facet is that you send these people out who are believers dedicated to your system. They go out, they try to get converts and they are rejected continually. And so there ends up being this kind of, uh, uh, persecutors complex, and you realize that your ward members are the only people who really love you and really accept you. Uh, you sense that uh, that sense of rejection out in the world, like you know that your tribe is really the place that welcomes you. And yeah. so there are lots of there's lots of psychology behind what missions or missionary efforts on any faith's part, what it really does for the person who goes on the mission. Uh, and the more difficult that mission is, often ends up with somebody who remains loyal the rest of their life to the church because of all the rejection and all the hardship that a mission was. It can have the other effect too. It can obviously drive people away and that happens all the time too. But these religions are very well aware 
that when they make, when they put a heavy burden on their members and challenge them to go out and try to secure converts, that that the psychology, at least in part, works in their favor and brings back somebody who is more dedicated to the faith. So anyway, those are a few slides. We've kind of gone past the three o'clock mark. By the way, 85, I saw there was like 97 viewers in here at one time. That's, I think, a high for us. Uh, we're really excited to see the channel growing. It's kind of been happening the last few weeks. Uh, we've had more and more people watching live and then also more and more views afterward. But let's sort of wrap up. Um, any thoughts from you guys before we kind of finish? Uh, I would just say in the in the last chapter of or in the last section of the paper, it, it talks a little about if you do go through this process and you come to the determination that the claims are not true, then you kind of have a, a number of options about what you do with that information. And it may be that because of your family circumstance or because you've been able to draw boundaries around yourself that allow you to still participate and decide when you will you know, surrender aspects of your life to that through time, money, or otherwise, and when you won't, you could continue to engage with the faith and maybe work to push it into more healthier options. In some cases, the faith itself and the culture of it will not allow you to do that, and they'll see you as kind of a virus that they need to expel. And I think historically, the Mormon church, which was my background, was a little bit more in that expulsion uh, mode. It, uh, it goes up and down and how it treats things. I think we might be in a little more tolerant mode uh, right now, but it doesn't mean that you have to immediately go out guns blazing. Sometimes just because of the pain and the hurt, it's easy to go down that pathway. And certainly there's an ex-Mormon community or an ex-whatever tradition you're in community that will be a place to have some uh, like-minded people to vent to. But um, just, there's not one particular way that you have to go and, and see yourself still as a good person. And I think taking these tools about critically analyzing claims and applying them to your life as you go forward will be very important because you are vulnerable to other groups that are looking to, ah, you're in a transition from one thing. Well, we have an answer for you. And it can be um, that love bombing, all of those things, they really speak to real human psychological aspects that we have and needs that we have for acceptance. And so I would just advise people to, you know, take it slow after that. Take some time. Uh, if it is harder for you to be a joiner to any subsequent group, that can be a healthy impulse for a while until you really figure yourself out. Yeah. And, and I'll add to that something which we've hit on in the show. Um, you've been taught all your life to trust voices outside of yourself and to concede your own inner voice to those outer authorities. And I think part of challenging your faith or thinking critically about religion generally um, puts a lot more weight on your inner voice. And my hope is that folks would kind of lean into trusting that, that inner conscience about what is right and what is wrong rather than trust the outer authorities within your system or any other as you go through life. My last thoughts were just uh, to encourage people that kind of deconstructing the truth claims, as hard as that is, is the easy part of deconstruction. The part that people sometimes skip or it comes later is, is what you're talking about, Jonathan, is these psychological things that are going on that we have to understand in order to understand why we were even in a religion. Why do religions even exist? And to see that religious impulse in all of the other spaces in, in 
Black Lives Matter or wellness culture, Gwyneth Paltrow or whatever it is, to be able to recognize it as part of human nature. And that's the deep inner work that once you start to do that, then you can include the good things about religion and spirituality and kind of transcend the more um, damaging aspects rather than having to throw it all away and just be completely without tools and without community and without connection mm. because it's all been thrown away with the religion. I think that that's what we're trying to avoid. Um, yeah. and, and there's that kind of space in the middle that seems to be healthy, but it takes a long time and to just be really patient with that process and just loved your resources on all of this, Jonathan. Yeah. Oh, well, thank Folks, you both for inviting me to be on. I really enjoyed the conversation. Love it. Folks, uh, obviously with that many folks in the live show, there's a lot of new people watching. This channel hosts multiple podcasts. This is the Almost Awakened podcast, which is one of those. You can go to almostawakened. Or sorry, yeah, almostawakened.org. And uh, folks, hit the subscribe button and the like button. That helps you to find it again easier next time and also uh, helps us to be able to get more reach to more people if you enjoyed the show. Jonathan Streeter, thank you so much for being on. I deeply appreciate uh, your mind uh, and all the work that you've put in. You've done a lot of things on YouTube showing various religions and the mechanisms they use. Folks can check out Jonathan Streeter. His website is Thoughts on Things and Stuff, and that's also the name of your YouTube channel. Yep. Correct? Yep. Okay, yep. folks. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much, and I hope everybody enjoyed the show. All right. Bye now. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.